Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello and welcome everyone to our Lab Week special episode of the Off the Bench podcast. For those of you who are new here, my name is Galena. My name is Justin Hannenberg, IKA Flying Lab Rat. And my name is Sophia Chandrasekhar, AKA Warbler Works. I, I, I still have no hashtag or any way to look me up besides Galena. <laughs> um, we have a full cast today. Um, and as all three of us have entered the medical lab science field within the last 10 years, we're really excited about the theme of uh, Lab Week in 2022. Um, so our theme this year is Back to Lab, celebrating our past as we look into our future. And what we wanted to do today is to hear a personal perspective and stories of those who have been involved in our profession longer than us and hear their stories and uh, hear their perspective on what the future of the medical laboratory science field is. To help us celebrate the occasion, we have our special guest, Patricia Jones, who has been recently retired after 45 years in the medical laboratory science field. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thanks for having me. We will also hear stories submitted from three other laboratory leaders. First, we have Janice conway Classen, who is retiring this year from a position of program director from the medical laboratory science program at the University of Minnesota. And she's been in the field for almost 50 years. We will also hear from Deb Rodal, who retired recently from her role as vice president of operations at St. Joe's Hospital in Minnesota, and was also the ASCLS past president in 2017-2018. She's been in the laboratory field for 42 years. We'll also hear from Charlie Wine Zero. Based in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area, Charlie has over 50 years of experience being ASCP certified when he was first earned that degree in 1973. Charlie's been a laboratory manager, laboratory director, strategic marketing director for Beckman Coulter, and also the managing director at Wine Zero Consulting LLC. Wow, what an amazing group of folks we'll hear from today. Now, Pat. Um, tell us a little bit about your professional journey to where you are today. Well, I graduated in 1978, and um, I worked for a short time at the hospital where I trained, and I might backtrack a little bit. The program at that time, I um, did my undergrad at a university for three years and then went to a hospital school of medical technology, which is a little bit different, I think, than the arrangement these days. And that was a 12-month internship. And we basically worked in the lab from 6.30 or 7 in the morning until lunchtime. And then from about 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we had um, college-level courses that were taught by various people in the hospital school. And then you go home and study and then <laughs> turn around in the morning and come back at 6 or 7 a.m. and do it all over again. Um, after moving to Minnesota, I found the job market quite difficult to enter up here. Um, 
partly because I hadn't gone to school in Minnesota. And at that time, uh, there were so many med techs looking for jobs that I actually had one human resources person laugh at me and said, oh, people like you are a dime a dozen. Good luck finding a job. So <laughs> a little bit different situation than it is today. Um, eventually, I did find a job at an internist's office. There were five physicians and a little two-person laboratory. And at that time, the lab was a um, source of income. Insurance companies uh, reimbursed lab testing quite well. And so everybody that walked in the door got a whole raft of tests. And uh, I did that for about two years and really needed some uh, other professional input. I wanted to advance my career and being part of a lab where I was the only med tech, I had a lab assistant, but I was the only med tech. And uh, I did go to professional meetings and such, but you know, still it was hard to break in being new to the area. Um, I was hired by Group Health and uh, which is now Health Partners, but I worked for them for about 10 years as a laboratory supervisor in the clinic labs. And at that time, each clinic, I, I need to backtrack a little bit there. Um, each clinic was um, being staffed by a lab supervisor supervising MLTs. And uh, I would say it was a, a really good time for the lab. Um, I was part of the clinic management team and had budget responsibilities and planning responsibilities and worked hand in hand with the clinic managers. And um, we were kind of responsible for our own clinics. And um, my supervisor or my manager at that time really um, was a good mentor. And I was surprised at how the extra courses that I had taken in my college career helped me. I had things like um, accounting, which helped in the budgeting. And, you know, when you do that, you know, when you're uh, studying for med tech, you think accounting, well, that's kind of weird, but I thought I'd do it, you know, and it was helpful. And so um, after my third child was born, I decided I couldn't be a lab supervisor anymore and uh, sought part-time work and started on a, in a clinic job, very part-time, and um, did an every other weekend type thing, which kept my foot in the door and um, also worked out well for our family. And as the family got a little older, I um, worked a few more hours per week and eventually went to a hospital second shift job and um, worked there for 10 years. And that was in the, what we considered a core lab. So I did most everything except for um, blood bank because they didn't want part-time people doing the blood banking. And then moved to a day position in a clinic. And uh, that is where I retired from. That's wonderful background. Thank you so much. I, I have uh, already, first of all, you mentioned that you had a 12-month a internship. Uh, you guys, how long was yours? Mine was only 12 weeks. Oh, mine was definitely longer than 12 weeks. Okay. 
the overall program, so I'm coming from a three-in-one program at Rutgers University, and our one-year program was more like 15 months, and there was definitely a time of overlap between the didactic coursework and the time that we were in the rotations, and so there was a bit of overlap, which I personally really liked. Uh, there was a nice practice with the learning of the theory to mm -hmm. reinforce that. I had one year of didactic classes. I have one year of classes. I can't say that word. Um, and then I had a full year of rotations actually that with some classes during that year, but I had a full year of rotations. Oh, okay. I'm the only outcast here. Yeah. We did all our classes first and then we did our internship completely separate. Um, so our clinical rotation. So it was three weeks in each bench. Um, Wait, so your rotations, they weren't, were they part of your program or was it like you had to go find an internship? No, uh, no, our school set up the internships, uh, but they, they followed you. So you had to pass all your exams and you had to pass the class portion and the lab portion in order to enter the clinical rotations. And so, gotcha. it, you know, it started anywhere, you know, let's say we finished in May, you know, the rotations would start in June uh, or September or December, um, depending on how in demand and how many uh, hospitals had spots available. So you could be waiting up until December to get into your rotations. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's uh, awesome to hear the, the difference already. And, and the other thing you mentioned, Pat, was, um, you know, you had, when you entered the field, you had a hard time finding a job because it was oversaturated. And it made me think of last fall, we did uh, an episode with Rick Panning. And he mentioned to, as well that there was a time where there was an overabundance in, uh, in the laboratory professionals. And it was, it, so uh, you're not the first person to mention this time uh, where uh, lab was very sought after and there was so much availability there for staff. So uh, very neat to hear the connections. If I could jump in on that, because I also entered the field at a time that it was hard to find a position. However, <laughs> the reasons were very different because this was after the housing crash in 2008, 2009. So while I was getting ready to complete my degree with this idea that I have a bright wide horizon, there's going to be all these people leaving the profession, that there's going to be open positions or people will be moving into manager and they'll need you. Nope, nope, nope. Everybody who was going to retire did not. And so that I was working at TGI Fridays for much longer than I anticipated. So Pat, looking back at um, your days in the profession, uh, what was the hip thing in the lab when you started? Well, <laughs> I feel like I'm referring to the dark ages, but uh, back when I started, we were still boiling glucoses and uh, we were manually titrating calcium levels. And um, it was a big deal when we got a semi-automated multi-channel analyzer. Um, we had a couple that would do, um, I remember PKUs was semi-automatic um, and then we could do um, a lipid panel on another machine, but, um, that was a big deal when we could just load up those tubes and we had to put them on in order because it was all manual entry as far as patient ID and tests required. But, you know, you could load it and, uh, and uh, you know, go on with your day. 
Um, another improvement was the um, multi-draw adapter for tubes. Um, you know how they have that little sheath on the, the um, end that you put the tube on so that you don't get the blood dripping. And the first ones that came out, you had the needle, but there was no uh, sheath there. So you had to be pretty quick because the blood would just start dripping out of that, you know, as you were popping the tubes on and off. <laughs> so um, we liked it when we didn't have to rush so much. So how many messes did you make? Well, um, I just remember one really spectacular mess. And <laughs> part of that was because I had to use a syringe and then put another syringe on and um, put some blood into a flask of with had with glass beads in order to run an LE test. And so um, I had, I don't know if blood got on the outside of the um, adapter or what, but I fumbled getting it hooked up again. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that that's the worst mess I remember. This actually, your answer about um, the multi-channel chemistry analyzers, we heard from multiple people. So uh, clearly made an impact. Um, so, you know, multi-channel chemistry analyzers, they did panels, um, you know, computers coming in. Um, seems, yeah, very, very reminiscent. And it says uh, instrumentation for chemistry and hematology. Um, that's really where the evolution um, started to where we see see it today. Yeah. Um, the other the other thing that Charlie mentioned uh, that I I thought was very interesting is the creation of Core Lab, and so I, I don't know if uh, if you saw what the world was like before Core Lab existed, uh, but he was talking about how um, chemistry, hematology, coag, and and you, your analysis um, were brought into this Core Lab setting, um, and that was really new before they were all spread out into separate room rooms um, and all their staff were full-time employees and worked in only one department. Did you ever get to witness that, that, that side of things? Um, yes. I, now that you mention it, that's how it was arranged when um, I did my internship. It wasn't, I think the hospital had maybe a um, hundred 20 beds. So it wasn't, you know, wasn't a huge place. But um, yes, people were very specialized. And I don't recall, I think we had maybe a couple of people who could float in between departments, but otherwise, they were quite separate. And for us, I feel like that, that's all we know is Core Lab. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's always existed. I think the only one that feels that it's still separated is micro and blood bank, but even blood bank now, uh, I think more and more people are rotating into um, as part of core. Um, do you, how is your lab, Sophia? So my place, our core lab, so our setup is almost exactly like how, um, how Charlie had his setup. Like our hematology was in a different area. Chemistry was one department. Everything was a separate department. Like if you look on the floor in our core lab, you can tell where the walls and the doors used to be of these, of blood gas. Cause blood gas was his own separate room. And you can tell cause the tiles are not aligned and they're a slightly different color. So, but they've knocked all that down because we still need the tube station for blood gas. But um, 
for us, so we have blood gas, chemistry, uh, urinalysis, hematology, coagulation, all in one area, but then blood bank is still separate. And I think it's just simply because of we are a 900 bed hospital. There's no way that, you know, someone who's only there once a week or once every couple of weeks, like, you know, every like twice a week or so would do proficiently enough. I think they, for the volume that we have, same thing with micro, but I do know like our micro department itself is broken up into um, the central processing area and the bacteriology area, then the AFP area, oh, sorry, AFB, I don't do micro. So one of the AFs and antifung, some, something, I forget what micro is, uh, but they have like multiple areas in micro that almost becomes its own like mini core lab of just the umbrella term of micro. But I do know it made such a huge impact to us, to, uh, to our lab, to create the core lab and get uh, automation in, even the like the multi-channel chemistry analyzers and like the hematology analyzers is that we have pictures, like people went around and took pictures of everyone being in one space and took pictures of all of these analyzers. And the only reason why I know what analyzers these are, because there are some people are like, oh yeah, that's this one, that's this one. But also I can tell where it is in the lab because I can see, oh, that's so-and-so's office back there in the background. So that must be in this area here, which has always been the new heme, like the new, the heme area ever since we had the core lab. So it, the amount of pictures we have from when they made it is really good. I think we we at Methodist Hospital also, I saw the tail end of that transition of uh, bringing Core Lab uh, more, more and more benches into it because when I did my rotation there, uh, Blood Bank was its own separate room with windows and it was very partitioned off. Uh, but then when I came to work there, um, they had knocked the wall down and blood bank was brought into core lab and certain people could still ro rotate into it. And even if you talk about Pat in your lab, right in the clinic setting, um, the way that the benches used to be divided versus how um, they remodeled into a setting where uh, you didn't have to take as many steps. You could help each other out more. Um, you know, you, you experienced that even in the last 10 years. Um, at the clinic. Yes, uh, that was uh, a good thing. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the last couple of years, how we've been running, and uh, that was a good thing that we were able to um, get new instrumentation and facilitate that open plan. Yeah, because I would imagine, uh, you know, you're reducing turnaround time, you can accomplish your workflow workload with um, fewer people, you know, if you think about one person calling out can be detrimental and mm -hmm. uh, really affect the entire lab. So the moment you reconfigure things to try to accommodate to that, that's nice. Yes. And um, just some of even uh, having different uh, laboratory software makes a difference too. You're able to monitor other sections more easily. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, when the transition happened, right? So back when we were all separated into um, our own rooms and, and a hematologist is just a hematologist, that you just, that's the area you focus on. Um, I wonder if there was um, pushback or um, to, to cross train, right? Because if you've been working in heme for 10 years and now 
you have to relearn chemistry and relearn your analysis. I, you know, I wonder if that was a difficult transition um, to go through or if it was more met with excitement. I think that, well, for me personally, I was excited to be able to work in different areas, but I do think that there was pushback. Um, and I understand some of that too. Um, and I think it never hurts to have subject matter experts mm -hmm. available. So I think you really need a combination of people that can float to different areas and some who are the subject matter experts that know the ins and outs of the instrumentation, say, or um, have seen so many different things that when you come up with a puzzle, they can help you figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important. Uh, so looking back, you know, at that time, what happened in the past that would be shocking today to us? Well, I think um, <laughs> one thing that is real cringeworthy, and I think about it now, and I still cringe, is that mouth pipetting. Um, <laughs> we had these a filter apparatus on a on a tube and a special end that would fit onto uh, like capillary pipettes or whatever, and um, I just and we carried that around in our pocket all day long, and you know. <laughs> like oh my gosh and then the um lack of ppe um i remember when gloves first came into practice and you know first it was oh i can't feel a vein with a glove on and you know you had people cutting the tips off the fingers so they could feel and that still happens today um for difficult draws but you know that was that was a big complaint when it first happened and and um, now I can't imagine touching anything without gloves on my hands. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think that, that those two things are what stick out in my mind. That was pretty common, I think, among everyone that we spoke with is the lack of PPE and mouth pipetting where those, wow, I can't believe we did that. What were we thinking? And I think so, to add to that is also food at the bench. Like I have a story from my lab that everyone loves to tell each other that back in the day, there's back when food was okay at the, like at the bench side, there is one technologist who refused to process any stool so from the other side of the lab in Coral Lab, I guess for the blood gas tube stations, someone had an avocado pit, covered it in Tootsie, uh, Tootsie Rolls, put it inside a urine cup, sent it over, picked it up for the person and licked it in front of her. And that was just- Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I, I, I do have to come to um, our defense to people that worked in the seventies. Um, we were not allowed to have anything, not even a coffee cup in the lab. So we were ahead of our time. I don't know who did that, but uh, you know, definitely <laughs> no food. You could sneak a piece of hard candy if you unwrapped it somewhere else, but- uh, <laughs> Oh, that still happens. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, so, and then talking about PPE, back when I worked at the lab, I was, I went on a cleaning spree of wanting to look through every drawer because there was a lot of old stuff in there that is, I don't know how old it is. And so I had come upon 
this amazing carton of um, photographs from, I don't know from how long ago and looking through it, I wish I could find it and show you guys, but it was Halloween at the lab. And it was back when everyone was allowed to wear costumes to the lab, head to toe costumes. So there's this photo, gosh, I want to say of either a clown, because there was a clown and then the, another woman dressed as a belly dancer, skin showing belly dancer. And she was, uh, it was either the clown or her, and they were drawing a patient. And so when we talk about no PPE, <laughs> I mean, I think we could take that even a step further that, that we had, um, um, scrubs were scrubs not required at one point, or was it just, uh, uh, an exception for like we do for lab week all, you know, we, we kind of loosen our, um, requirement for scrubs and say, okay, you can wear your long sleeve or you can wear pattern scrubs or, uh, do you, do you happen to remember? Well, for my personal experience, when I started out, we had to wear nurses uniforms, white uniforms and white in the lab makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, <laughs> and then it, it, uh, morphed into, um, business attire with a lab coat or um, uniform pants with any sort of shirt that you wanted as long as it didn't have a slogan running across the top of it. Um, and then it was, it was really a great day when we could wear scrubs finally. And I don't, you know, I don't know what the thinking was on that, why they kept us from it before. I know uh, when I was working at our hospitals, our requirements uh, was that you could wear any color scrubs, but the top and the bottom of the scrubs had to match. And you did have to wear both a scrub top and a bottom and they had to be matching. Um, what about you guys? What were your rules? We only recently, I think in the past three or four years actually went to like mandated scrubs at least scrub, uh, scrub colors, at least we have to wear purple, specifically uh, grape purple top with black pants. So we're the purple people eaters in the lab. Our choices were beige, all beige or all brown. So we went with the purple option because who wants to look like poop or pee all day? Like no one really wants to do that. Um, the, 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 color options weren't great. Um, but before that we could wear any, um, and really anything like any scrub pants with a UN, like our, our uh, hospital t-shirts or, um, a non-logo shirt. Um, and I think I, we still have pictures from like early two thousands or like early night, late nineties, early two thousands where people wore jeans, you know? Um, so for us, at least our mandated uniforms, I mean, we can all, we can wear either scrubs or business casual, but um, that only happened within the last five years or so. What about you, Justin? I never had a designated color for scrubs, although I would have liked to see that. Um, however, we did have scrubs for the longest time that that was an option for us. And as much as I find them comfy, I don't like wearing scrubs. I would prefer to have office attire, um, whether shirt and tie, just nice blouse, whatever it be. Like, I just didn't like wearing scrubs all that much. I wanted to be a little dressier. 
I find the evolution of scrubs too very interesting because I feel like it's in the last, I don't know, five years that I've started to see the, the jogger style scrubs. And it's, it's really pushing the boundaries because at what point is it no, is it really scrubs or is it, you're just wearing joggers? Uh, (laughs) Okay. Okay. I can appreciate this. And I think because I've been outside of the hospital environment. So like, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to wear scrubs, but there's some really cool prints out there. The fabrics are fantastic. I had a pair of Grey's Anatomy scrubs that were just amazing and so smooth. Everything felt great. And, but however, so I'm thinking if there's these more form-fitting kind of fitted, not like I'm flowing around in my pajamas feel about them, I think I could get back into scrubs. I would give it another go. See, I like the scrub pants because they feel like pajamas, but with extra pockets as I love the side pocket that can stick my phone in rather than granted, you know, girls' pants, what pockets are there in the first place? If it's a seam, it's probably not even a pocket. It's a fake pocket that I can't carry anything. So I do, I personally love the scrub pants. I still wear them at home actually a lot. Nice. Uh, Pat, you know, when we're talking about shocking things, did you ever um, stop a centrifuge with your hand? Um, No, I, I was, self-preservation was key. (laughs) I wasn't gonna, (laughs) I wasn't gonna stick my hand into something that moved. Uh, that, that was uh, one of Charlie's uh, responses back as to what he remembers as, as uh, shocking. So I remember, you know, our centrifuges in the lab, Pat, were uh, in the processing area. Uh, they're pretty, pretty old, I want to say. And so when you open it, it's still spinning as it's slowing down. And I, I admittedly have definitely stuck my hand in there to slow it down because processing <laughs> can get very busy. And I don't have the time. Um, so when did you feel like the lab was most popular, Pat? I would say um, in the 70s and 80s, um, the, uh, as I had mentioned before, the lab was a source of revenue for the hospitals and doctor's offices because insurance companies really reimbursed well. and. Um, at the hospital, we would admit the pre-op patients the night before and everybody would get a baseline panel so that they could see how they reacted to surgery or whatever. And um, then uh, Medicare developed the DRGs and that was the kiss of death as far as um, the lab being a a, a source of revenue and it became a cost center. And I think that, um, you know, the cash cow got slaughtered, so to speak. And so, um, you know, you had to really argue for lab. One of the things that uh, Jan mentioned was also, uh, you know, how DRGs really killed the lab. But, you know, in, in that response, she mentioned that there really was a time when there was a lot of interprofessional grand rounds. And so there was a lot more involvement with doctors and nurses in a consulting manner about patients. Um, So do you remember uh, being more involved in patient care than you you think we are now? Well, I I think it really is a matter of the um, pathologist group and the individual clinicians more so than maybe the lab being a popular area. I think um, some physicians are, 
are very willing to look at the lab as a partner in patient care. And that was a part of the lab that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I felt like the lab does perform a vital role and to have that recognized felt good, um, you know, instead of just being this mysterious black box where you send blood and you spit out some answers. So um, I like the collaborative aspect of it. And I, I think it really is dependent upon the culture in a particular institution. And hopefully we're seeing the trend of interprofessionalism come back and very quickly now that we are establishing the uh, DCLS program and really you know, involving the um, doctorate level CLS members in rounding and consulting and involving them back directly into patient care. Yes, I think that is really, really a good development. I think certainly we're seeing another roundabout through COVID and some of the things of molecular testing, genetic testing coming up. Point of care testing is now another area that we're starting to see in a certain the potential future of a decentralized laboratory. There was still always, I believe, be a need for a core laboratory, but now we're starting to see certain satellites. We're starting to see those interdisciplinary teams. Um, this is a new phase, a new potential for us as far as popularity, more than just where helping nurses where to find things in the EMR, as Deborah Woodall pointed out. We are always seem to be very popular for nurses in that way and helping them find the results. Um, but something that Charlie had mentioned here, yes, was that now today is a great time for us. Um, and it oddly mimics a time that I think that laboratory was initially popular for us. And that was in the late 19th century, um, coming into the early 1900s, when you had massive pandemics happening, typhoid fever, uh, tuberculosis, um, brucellus coming around, and laboratories were considered a luxury item. Not many places had that, but this was a time that early days of public health. And so oddly mimicking kind of what we've experienced over the last two years for ourselves, just with new technologies and revisiting those interdisciplinary aspects that you had mentioned that we were a part of at the time, not too long ago. And then you have to look at to, you know, the benefit um, that COVID brought to the awareness of our profession. Um, that, that's fantastic. And then at the same time, you counter it with stories like Theranos and how the laboratory pr had a promise of, hey, we can do all your testing at a fingertip. And then instead it just turned out into this big fraud too. Um, Gosh, I want to say uh, there's what is it the 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 quote that uh, any publicity is good publicity though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, I don't know. I think you know in some ways that's going to make it harder for young entrepreneurs mm -hmm. in the laboratory space to really prove themselves out because the the skepticism that's going to be there, rightfully so, is there. But we're you know that's a fresh wound for Theranos in a certain aspect of us. Yeah, it put us in the spotlight. And if you haven't seen the show, the episode one has this beautiful scene when Elizabeth Holmes walks into the laboratory and it just shows us in a really wonderful light. It touched my heart. Um, definitely go check out because they did a very good job on the show, The Dropout, um, in talking about that. So yes, I think we are coming into people are really trying to come up and be innovative in this space and they see the value here. 
Yeah, I, I think the publicity was good in a way. Um, it uh, caused some recognition that, oh, there's another area in healthcare. <laughs> you know, everybody knows the doctors and nurses and the ERs and the clinics and stuff like that, but um, it did put the lab kind of at the forefront. Um, you know, it's kind of a mixed blessing because you have the controversy about the cycle times for the COVID testing, for example, and, you know, casting aspersions on, you know, well, you know, are we really getting an accurate test and, and things like that. But um, in general, I think it's good to, for the profession to have it more in the limelight. It's definitely been strange to hear my friends talking about IgM antibodies. I'd never really thought that this would be part of my dinner conversations, but here we are. I definitely, with COVID, noticed a lot more people approaching uh, with uh, curiosity um, and a true desire to understand um, how testing works. I don't know about you guys, but um, when you know, the vaccine was coming out and, uh, just the mechanism of action for COVID was coming out. I got approached a lot with, Hey, is the testing accurate? Is the vaccine really going to help? Um, did you guys experience that as well? I had some direct questions about the, um, accuracy of the testing and how it was done and, you know, why did it take so long and, you know, things like that. You know, I think this hits onto something else kind of thinking of in the past, we had the interdisciplinary team, that was something that we were doing, we were consulting with other parts of healthcare. However, I think the next evolution for that with our field isn't just going to be, isn't just going to be connections with other health professionals, but it's going to be connection with the public, and really being able to communicate out to our communities, our friends, our family, out on the streets, what we're doing. And I think that really means a lot, to, that, that asks a lot of us, a lot more than we may think of coming down from our towers of knowledge and really meeting people where they're at and being able to communicate that way. Hopefully having a podcast starts the conversation and starts the, the steps of um, reaching out to those who may not be aware of, right? Like the DCLS program uh, and what, what, what the next steps, what does the future look like? Um, really creating new avenues for that conversation, I think is really critical. Uh, so speaking of the future, uh, Pat, if you could predict the lab 50 years from now, what do you imagine it to look like? Well, <laughs> I don't know if this goes out 50 years or not, but um like Justin said, I think that um, we'll have more specialized laboratories. Um, you know, you'll have core labs maybe closer to the patient, but I think that there will be um, some high capacity laboratories offsite too. And um, I think that could uh, lead to greater concerns about specimen integrity and offsite collection. Um, you know, maybe some issues that we haven't seen before because we have had the capacity to do so many different tests, either locally or, or you know, as the volume goes up to be sent out, I think that will be, um, create more problems. And then I think that um, AI will have a, a bigger role to play. And I think there's going to be a lot of temptation for CEOs and managers to 
depend on AI and maybe um, wish that they could um, hire fewer highly trained personnel, um, you know, substitute the AI for, for people and the person's brain. <clears throat> and I think, you know, AI is great. It, it, uh, it's an adjunct to human ability, but um, I really hope that CEOs will consider it an adjunct and not a replacement for humans in the lab. I do think that uh, that automation and increase in automation will replace the work work workforce a, a little bit, uh, hopefully in the sense that it solves the workforce shortage that we're having and and kind of rebalances things. Um, hopefully, it doesn't kind of over overcompensate um, for uh, the need for MLS and MLTs. What about you guys? Do you guys have any predictions for the future? What are we, what are we going to look for in the next 30, 40 years? I was actually going to hop on the AI thing. You, you sound like my husband a little bit in that he's all about, you're going to get replaced by computers. You realize that. And all I have to remind him is yes, but the computer can't replace the probe when it's bent, but I can't cause I have fingers. So I think, I think in that regard, if, even if we do have like more specialized technology, more smart technology, essentially, at the end of the day, we'll, we're still there to look at the very strange, weird things. I think we'll just see weirder, weirder things like, you know, the really big problem samples and the really big problems that the machines themselves can't handle because maybe they're the problem. You know, I, I think we'll sh maybe shift slightly from being as involved with every single sample that we touch to being the problem solving as well as a lot more heavy on technology and understanding how you know different um, different software works or how it communicates where like troubleshooting instead of troubleshooting oh my gas chromatography analyzer needs like needs a new cut because my peaks are fat to I need to restart the PC because it's no longer communicating to the printer for some reason. I can find that in this screen here. So it's like a different kind of troubleshoot. That's what that's what I think. Um, and actually, uh, Deb also thinks that uh, we'll eventually go to tricorders of a la Star Trek. I think that'd be amazing, but I also would be highly concerned as to how, how it's getting all those results. She thinks it's going to be, um, what is it, where people are hooked up like through like an intravenous line at all times or an indwelling line. I'd be concerned about how you're going to fit all of that technology. I mean, my chemistry analyzer is half the size of a room. How are you going to fit that into the size of a cell phone? How much radiation is coming out of that cell phone? That's my, that's my main question. Shamefully, I have no idea what a tricorder is. We got to get you on Star Trek. Seriously. And Twitter, apparently. Yes. So. <laughs> I'm behind you guys. <laughs> um, I, you know, what you as you're talking that um, it's going to, the tricoder is going to replace, you know, our heme chemistry testing, et cetera. Um, it makes me think of, I know they already have full body scans available. I know here, I feel like at the U we can go in and I don't know, pay some fee and, and get full body scan. And I think it's, I, I don't know, I think it's supposed to check for maybe if you have cancers or, you know, abnormal growths maybe. Um, so I think the, the future, uh, is definitely there not come moving forward, not only in the lab field, but everywhere else is having this, um, bulk monitoring of the human body. 
what what do you guys think um, about patient patients becoming more taking more responsibility for their own health? Uh, you know, I've noticed a trend in the last I don't know five ten years of um, biohacking, or at the very least, this awareness. Um, and and you know, you you can go online now, and I can purchase my own. Um, advanced stool testing to see what's out of balance in my stool or DNA testing to see what mutations I have, right? There's been in this increase in curiosity um, for, for people to take kind of health back in their own hands. Um, do you see that impacting the lab? Oh, you're talking about my whole grant topic that I wrote through my master's program right now. <laughs> we could, we don't have enough time, at least for the opinion that I have to talk about that in this episode. However, the over-resounding answer I have to that question is yes. And it's better that way for patients to have that autonomy. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to go down that too, too much right now. Um, I do think that the potential for the Star Trek TIE coder or even the, you know, the point of care level that even Theranos may have wanted Great to Theranos, what they had an idea that the physiology and the fundamentals will never quite change in physics, can't really change that. However, I do think that we will see some of these kind of technologies that can do biometrics that are easily accessible. Think about those, like, those little rings that people can wear that monitor heart rate, sleep wellness, body temperature, those things. These are the small, small evolutions of this. These are the early stages that could possibly be. And I'd never even thought of the radio, uh, the radiation of that until Sophia mentioned it. Of like, yeah, I, that's gonna be a battery. What happens if something goes wrong? Um, so these are questions for us to work out. These are the ethical questions to consider that some of these things that you're discussing in this may not necessarily be accessible to everyone or not everyone has the sort of interest to do that or the disposable income. So there is health equity to consider in this conversation as well. I don't know if you guys noticed, but I just went on the ASCP website um, that shows, you know, our CE credits and how much and what category we have to earn. And I don't know when it happened, but now we have a new category of bioethics that we have to fulfill. And I'm super excited about that uh, because as you mentioned, it's just, it, it's going to grow that, that field is going to grow significantly. So, uh, you know, as we looked at the past, Pat, you know, as we looked at the future, um, and reflecting on your career, what sage advice do you have for the upcoming generations of laboratory professionals? Well, um, you know, the laboratory as a field has, has evolved definitely, but um, I think um, one of the most important things for anybody considering laboratory um, medicine is that you should keep in mind that there's the person represented by the tests that you're performing. And this will provide the motivation for consistent high quality work. You know, Sophia mentioned about how um, we get more and more disconnected from that individual tube. And, you know, it used to be that, you know, you're, we were looking at every tube and matching the name to the name that we had on the screen or whatever. And, and now, you know, I could load up a rack of 20 tubes and not know any of the names that are on there unless I happen to look at the log of the machine. Um, so I think that's going to be um, something important for new ones. Um, keep learning. Um, 
one thing that kept me going for the 45 years and and even now I've always been curious I've been interested in the latest developments um, I feel like there's always something new to learn and to me medicine is very exciting science is very exciting and um, just keep learning and you know keep that curiosity um, and then a third thing would be that um, really look at the skills that you have and and what you've learned and you know say drawing patients and running tests doesn't turn your crank anymore you have a lot of transferable skills you can go into biotech you can go into pharmaceuticals you can do so many things um, with that laboratory background uh, that actually is very reminiscent uh, of uh, what Jan has said um, in her advice to everyone about seizing little opportunities that present themselves and choose a different professional path if it comes your way. Um, you know, we've we've read um, the advice provided by all our other uh, three representatives of, of kind of the lab sages and the lab leaders. Um, and they are all fantastic. And what we will do is we will include this list uh, in the description for our podcast, uh, because I don't think that it's enough just to hear it once. Um, I think to see it and to really hold it and to reflect on it um, is going to be very valuable for everyone. So there you have it, our lab week special. Maybe in another 50 years, we'll be on someone else's podcast talking to them about what this day, this moment looked like for our profession. Um, that would be a really fantastic day. Um, I, I will, however, make the prediction, though, that the sage advice that we heard today will still hold the same value for many decades to come. Um, so again, please go check out the description in the podcast to read the full list. Thank you so much, Pat, for joining us and sharing your stories. Um, we hope that you, you, your transition from the lab world into your next chapter is absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. And it was very enjoyable and it, to get to know all three of you a little bit and Glena the most. I enjoyed working with her for several years. And um, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. And enjoy. See you all next month. Yay.